Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11. Now, as you may be aware, we are in a section of the book that uh, has these short little statements, one verse, maybe two verse Proverbs, uh, that teach a point and then go on and teach something altogether. And typically, the means by which the author uses, Solomon uses, is to draw a contrast between two things. So for instance, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, our first verse for today, you'll notice that you have a statement, two statements really, separated by the word but. And it says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And so you have these two opposing ideas put side by side with one another. And essentially in there, there's an exhortation. Look, do you want to do something that will be an abomination to the Lord? Or do you want to do something that will bring delight to the Lord? And so that's sort of naturally put out there in each one of these statements. And the contrast are going to be between either things that are good and evil, or it'll be between things that sometimes they'll use the words righteous and wicked, or those things that are going to be good and helpful in your life, and those things that will be detrimental and ultimately destructive in your life. And so throughout the next 15 chapters or so, we're going to have these short, quick contrast uh, and contrasting statements. And this first one we have now here is between something that the, the Lord finds pleasing and something that the Lord finds despicable. And so again, I'll read it. It says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now this idea of a false balance, this may be a given for some of you, but perhaps not. A false balance, uh, it refers to the weights and balances that were used to measure when transactions were done. So we have a little photo here. You get a, kind of an idea. You've seen that. I was at the grocery store recently, and the only, I was trying to think, where are these things still in operation? And it's in the vegetable aisle. Uh, it's pretty much the only place I recall it, or something very similar uh, to that. And the idea would be on one side, you would, have, you would put a weight designated for the item being sold. So we got a little picture, I think, of that as well. They're in there, but it's more of a close-up of what it might have looked like. So on one side, you would have a weight for the item that is designated being sold. And on the other side, the customer might put their currency or their coins. And so those two would balance out. And the idea would be, okay, you're buying 10 apples. We know that's going to be equivalent to five of these weights. So when you put your coins in there and it levels out with the weights... You can take your apples with you or whatever it may be. So again, we don't do it very much uh, today, but when the balances appeared to be lined up, then the transaction was complete. Now the problem is, throughout history, even in America, we have uh, an agency of the government for weights and balances. And we don't really do that much, but trucks and things like that, when they pull into the, the place to be weighed, there's an agency to make sure that those weights and balances are accurate. And so, yeah, it may read up on the screen, this is what you owe, but how do I know that's accurate? I can't weigh, get out and weigh my truck or can't get out and weigh these things, so I don't know. And the problem was there were crooked merchants that sometimes had two sets of weights. And so they would have a set of weights for when they were selling things, and they'd have another set of weights for when they were buying things. And those two weights didn't measure up. And so they were ripping people off in the merchandising process, ripping people off. But if you think about it, if the weights are supposed to say 10 
pounds and they say 300 pounds, I'm going to know. All right? I know I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm going to know that the difference between 10 pounds and 300. But I'm probably not going to know the difference between 10 pounds and 12 pounds or 10 pounds and 11 pounds. And so it's just a small little thing. You might even look at it and say, you know, it's really not that big a deal. It's just a little bit at a time. No one's hardly going to take any notice. And again, it's not that big of a deal. Well, you know who does take notice? I feel like the church lady, Jesus. Jesus takes notice. Some of you may not know the church lady. Um, she, she, it doesn't matter. Uh, anyhow, Jesus takes notice of the dishonest transaction. Notice what, he actually, what it says here in the, in the proverb. It says that such a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. That's a really strong word. When was the last time you used the word, that's an abomination to me? Or it's abominable, besides for the snowman or whatever. You know, you, you, you don't even use the term. It is such a strong word. In our English language, the word means a thing that causes disgust or hatred. That's really strong. That's a strong statement to say, I hate you. Or this causes me disgust or hatred. But notice here, dishonesty in our business practices causes disgust and hatred in our Lord. And if you keep looking at the verse, conversely, uprightness and integrity causes him delight. And so when you're very careful not to steal paper clips, for instance, from the office, and when you're very careful to make sure every penny is accounted for, the Lord takes notice of that. And it says it causes him delight. But when you were to, if you were to say something like, well, does it really matter? Just a couple of coins, it's, what's it going to be, a dollar or something like that? Yes, it matters. The Lord takes notice. He cares about and he looks in on the way we handle our business transactions. And so whether we're running a huge Fortune 500 company, as many of us in this room are, or we're just simply buying and selling at the local market, the Lord takes notice of these things. And when we handle those transactions with honesty and when we handle them with integrity, God is pleased. And that's what I want my life to be. Every day I live my life, I'm hopeful that at the end of the day, the Lord will simply say, hey, you did a good job today. Well done. And certainly when I come to the end of my days, I hope to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And this is one way that you can please the Lord by over the top trying to demonstrate integrity in your dealings with other people. Notice also when you cheat and when you connive and when you scheme, this passage says that the Lord is stirred with disgust when you do that. And certainly that's not a place I want to be in my relationship with the Lord, and I suspect it's not for you as well. Now, I do hope you're tracking with me, and I hope you're not looking here and saying, well, okay, I got it. The Lord does not like dishonest scales. And then thinking, I never use scales. I guess this verse doesn't apply to me, or something like that. I hope that you're tracking with me that this verse, go this verse goes far beyond whether or not we're honest in the use of our balances and our scales, our weights and our balances, the message of this verse is that God desires and is pleased when we are honest in our business dealings. That's the message of this verse. And conversely, he's uh, displeased or literally disgusted when we're not. And so it disgusts the Lord when the merchant tacks on hidden charges and inflates his bill in a way that is unbeknownst to the customer. That disgusts the Lord. And some of us in here, we, we have the opportunity 
to put bills out there for people. It's the type of work that we do. And you have the opportunity every time to inflate the bill just a little. No one's really going to notice. Is it really going to matter? They're already paying $2,500. If I add 200 bucks to the bill, will they notice? They may not, but Jesus will. And it disgusts him. He is displeased, literally disgusted, when the seller uh, keeps key information from the buyer. I bought a car one time. It was a van. And this was the decision I made at that time afterwards. I will never buy a van off the side of the road again. Uh, was a decision I made. Uh, and so, you know, I go to this guy, it's out in Hamilton, a fellow out in Hamilton, and uh, we go in and we try the car and we drive it around. Uh, and I don't know anything about cars. He says, you want to look under the hood? Yeah, I should. Yeah. <laughs> he opens up the hood and I'm like, looks good. It looks real good. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know anything, you know? And so I'm looking under the hood at this car. I looked at the tires. Tires look good. There's four of them, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And then right about as we're about to finalize the deal, we're sitting at the guy's kitchen table. He pulls out another paper, and he says, would you just sign this other document as well? And I'm like, what's this? And it's this document. If this car breaks down as you're leaving my house, I am under no responsibility. And right there I knew. I was like, oh, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Sure, I'll sign it, you know, kind of thing. Drive it off, and within like three months or whatever, the transmission falls off out of the car or something like that, and the whole thing was ruined. And so, never again will I buy a car from a guy off the side of the road, unless Charlie Hunt is with me, because uh, he's, he's our mechanic guy, and he's wonderful. But, uh, and the, peop the people, I brought it to the mechanic, and he said, yeah, there's been a problem all along. That's probably why you got such a good deal on the vehicle. But the guy never shared that with me. Jesus saw him, and he said, may the Lord bring great repentance, uh, however. All right, but he notices that when the vendor is less than forthright and in his or her dishonesty is taking advantage of a customer, the Lord sees that. And he calls those practices, again, such a strong word, he calls them an abomination. Now, I, I want you to notice this. At the same time, don't forget, and, and everyone here, we all hate that too, right? Especially when we're the victim. But the Lord also hates just as much when the customer is the one that is being dishonest. Despite the fact, we call it being savvy. We call I get good deals when I go out shopping or whatever. And yet there are times where we try to connive, we try to manipulate the seller to get the best possible deal. We love the item, but we'll never tell the salesperson that. And we'll make, oh, this piece, this piece of junk. This thing, look at that. You know, there's dirt on it. You can wash it, you know what I mean, or whatever. But we connive and we scheme. The Lord takes notice of that. Now, that's not a ban on negotiating. So you go in to buy a car or something like that. I guess you can negotiate the price and try to get a good price. But what it speaks to is God's desire that that negotiating that you're doing is done so in a way that honors him. So the idea is that Christian merchants whether you're buying or selling, I'm not sure what the other term is, but Christian merchants, merchants are expected to bring their faith with them into that business dealing, into that merchandising. And as I said, so too are Christian consumers. So let me give you a couple of examples that may hit home. If your kid is 13 and the discount applies to those that are 12 and under, pay the extra dollar to get your kid into the movie. Pay the extra dollar. Maintain your integrity because the Lord takes notice. If the teacher assigns you homework for you to do, then do the homework. Teachers, amen? Yes. Don't cut and paste it from the internet. 
Don't cozy up next to the smart girl at lunch so you can just check your answers. We know what you're doing. You're not checking your answers. You're stealing my answers. All right? The Lord takes notice of that. Two rules, I think, can be applied from this verse when we deal with others in these sorts of ways. Number one, is the Lord pleased? So when this transaction is over, will the Lord be pleased? And number two, if I were in the other person's place right now, would I find this transaction to be fair? Would I be making the same arguments about the quality of the material and the level of the craftsmanship if I were in the other person's shoes right now? Or to put it as Jesus said it, whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. For that's the law and that is the prophets, the prophet. So whether we're talking about a transaction at a local market or a multi-million dollar deal in some law office, or we're talking about an invoice we submit for work done, or we're buying a ticket at the movie theater, if you know the Lord and you desire to please the Lord, then honor the Lord in all of your dealings. Be a man or a woman that brings their faith into those dealings. Deal with others in a way that is honest. Deal with others in a way that is right. And the scripture says the Lord will take notice of that and he will be pleased. Amen? Now the second proverb today, it says, Now when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Now, when the Bible speaks of pride, it's not speaking of a general satisfaction in a job well done. So your kid brings home a great report card or a good report card, and you say, wow, that's great. I'm proud of you. You must be proud of yourself. That's not something that the Bible uh, prohibits necessarily. It can cross over into that realm. But this idea of feeling good about a job that was well done is not necessarily a sin. When the Bible warns us of the sin of pride, it's speaking of pride as something that the Lord's hate, and it's speaking of the kind of pride that stems from self-righteousness and conceit. That's the type of pride that the Lord hates, because such an attitude is an attitude that the Lord despises, because it's an attitude that has convinced its possessor that he or she has no need for God or for others. Psalms 10, it says this, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him, Notice, in his thoughts, all of his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's the type of pride that God hates. And the Bible makes clear that the proud are so consumed with themselves that there's no room for God. That attitude the Lord despises because such an attitude is, a, is an arrogance that is opposed to the spirit of humility that the Lord calls for each of us to have. You remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a pretty well-known, perhaps you'll remember it. There in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when a person is poor in spirit, that means they recognize that in and of themselves, no good thing dwells, as the scripture makes very, very clear. When a person is poor in spirit, it demonstrates that they're convinced of their complete and total need for God and for his mercy and his enabling. Notice this, not just for salvation. I think most of us have that down. No good thing dwells in me. I need God for salvation. But the idea of being poor in spirit goes beyond just the need for salvation, and it goes to the enabling in all things. Lord, I need your strength. I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your guidance in all things that I'm doing. The one that is proud, I think, would do well to read and memorize the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? If then, you received, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So I'm the smartest kid in school. 
I run around, no, that's not true, but I run around and I boast all about how smart I am, how intelligent I am. What do you have that you did not receive? Why, why is it that you were born in such a way that your brain could do what it needed to do to allow you to interact with the material that was presented to you by other people that worked hard to prepare those lessons to get you to this particular place where you are now? What is it, why is it you were born this way and not born this particular way in this particular place where they don't even have an educational system? What do you have that you did not receive? And so if your success in the classroom causes you to be proud and arrogant with that success, you need to go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If you have athletic ability or something like that, what do you have that you have not received? And so on. The one that is proud is so blinded by their pride that they've convinced themselves that either they have no need for God or that God should accept them as they are because they are deserving of acceptance. That, that's not how things operate. It's God in his mercy that accepts us. Now, I honestly believe this. Pride is no minor sin. It's no small little character flaw. Yeah, she's proud, she's arrogant, she thinks she's all that. At least she's not robbing banks. At least she's not getting into fistfights you know, at the local bar or something like that. She's just proud and arrogant. It is no minor sin. I would suggest to you that a case can be made that pride is the root of all sin. Satan, for instance, Isaiah chapter 14 tells us, was cast out of heaven because of the sin of pride. The kingdom was torn from King Saul because of his pride, 1 Samuel 15. Peter stumbled and almost was destroyed because of pride and self-confidence, Luke chapter 22. It's pride that keeps so many from accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. It's pride. The idea that admitting sin and acknowledging that in our own strength we can do nothing to inherit eternal life, that's a constant stumbling block for those that are proud of heart. There must be something I can do on my own when the scripture says the exact opposite. And it's pride that keeps so many from accepting the Lord. Pride is giving ourselves credit for something that God has accomplished. And it's taking the glory that belongs to God and keeping it for ourselves. And so ultimately pride is essentially self-worship, which is exactly what we see Satan trying to do in Isaiah chapter 14. And as we learned two weeks, three weeks ago in chapter 8, pride is something that God hates. Notice it says, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And the reason why God hates it, we might look at it and say, well, you just don't like people worshiping other things besides you. You want all the worship. Well, that's certainly true because he deserves all the worship. But it goes beyond that. It's, it's not that God is like jealous or mad or something in that regard. It goes beyond that because the Lord hates pride because the Lord knows how destructive pride is to a person particularly to the child of God, how destructive it can be in our walk with the Lord. I say particularly in the sense of most of us in here are believers. And so in the context of this room, pride is so destructive for us in our walks with Jesus. Throughout the scripture, we are told of the consequences of pride. No doubt you know the well-known verse that speaks of pride going before destruction. The verse says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before the fall. It's a spiritual law. 
In the same way, in Galatians, we learn that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Well, there's another spiritual law. There's spiritual laws, principles, ideas that are just at work because, like gravity, they are what they are. And here is this one, pride goes before destruction. First there's pride, then there's a fall, and then as we're going to see in our verse here, then comes disgrace. So the verse reads, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. So again, think through the scripture. I already gave you a few examples, but think through the scriptures of the various accounts of pride and shame that invariably follow. Lucifer, Satan. The exalted angel allowed himself to be lifted up with pride. The fall, consequently cast out of heaven. Eve gave in to Satan's appeal to her pride there in the garden and suffered the consequences. Peter was humbled after having denied the Lord. Despite his insistence earlier that though everybody else forsake you, I would never, Lord, never abandon you. Think of Samson. Think of King Saul in the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar, Queen Jezebel, one person after another that is lifted up by their circumstances and become proud as a result, experience the fall and then the disgrace that comes with it. The same applies to nations. This week I was reading through the book of Obadiah, the whole book I read during one sitting. Um, If you're not familiar with Obadiah, it has like 10 verses total. Um, But there I am, I'm reading this short prophecy, and I came across uh, a prophecy of Obadiah against a nation that was called Edom. And notice what the Lord says to Edom through the prophet Obadiah, particularly in the context of our discussion on pride. He says this, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, Edom. You shall be utterly despised. Notice, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, the safety of the rocks and so on, in your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And so repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, whether you're talking about individual or nation, whether you're talking about the nation of Israel or Israel's neighbors, you read of their being lifted up in pride and they're subsequently being brought down low. Because again, it's this spiritual principle, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Now, believe it or not, that disgrace that Solomon calls it is actually God's mercy. It's actually his kindness that he would let us fall because of our pride. Dramatic pause. It's a mark of God's mercy upon his people. So the fall, though the fall may be painful and it may be embarrassing, it's better to have that that shame come now and the person be humbled now than the person come to the end of their days still lifted up in pride and forever alienated from God by that pride. So again, I quoted earlier, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those that are humble. And whatever it takes to make us humble is ultimately for our good. And that's God's grace and that's God's mercy. It's when we're walking in humility that the Lord delights to show his grace. As James reminded us, he gives, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. And so it's the wise that refuse to allow pride to take root in their lives. And it is so incredibly subtle, pride is. And it tries to work itself in into all the different areas of our lives and we, we think we're dealing with all of the big areas and then we begin to get proud of how good we're doing in all of those big areas. It's so incredibly subtle. And so it's the wise that refuse to allow pride to take root in their lives, continually go before the Lord. And that's the best place to deal with your pride because when you get into his presence, not a whole lot of pride can remain in that particular place. It's the wise that are purposeful about maintaining an attitude of humility, and it's the wise that humble themselves so that God will not have to humble them. And so, don't be proud. That's my word of exhortation on that. All right, but go before the Lord and maintain humility. Let's go on to verse 3. It says, now the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Once again, uh, exhortation from Solomon regarding personal integrity. He says, the integrity of the upright will guide them. Now, personal integrity makes life and the myriad of decisions that we have to make every day, it makes it a whole lot easier. Personal integrity does. So if you own a business... Allow your integrity to guide your decisions. If you are, well, you all are, you're going through life and you have to make decisions here and there. Allow your integrity to guide your decisions. And so I say it makes life a whole lot easier because I no longer have to wrestle through every decision. So often the decision is already made for me, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to respond, if I'm going to be truthful and so on. The decision is simply do the right thing. And so the decision is often made for us. And so when I come to a situation, I don't have to ask myself, should I lie in this circumstance to get over on this person? No, don't. You don't lie. You walk, you go with the truth and you walk with your integrity. You are faced with a circumstance. You say, should I give in to this temptation and indulge in my flesh? No, you name the name of Christ. Walk accordingly, the scripture says. You have died to sin, how can you live in it any longer? You're filling out a, a bill that somebody owes you, an invoice somebody owes you. Should I fudge on the invoice so that I can bring in a little more money on this transaction? It's already answered for you. If you're a person that is walking in integrity, it's already answered to you. Not if you want to maintain your integrity. Not if you want to maintain your clean or clear conscience. The decision's already made. In so many cases where we're forced, so to speak, between left or right, the decision is already made for us, for the person that is seeking to walk in integrity. And that integrity, as the verse says, that will guide you. Do what you know to be right, as God reveals in his word, and as, he ref- as the way in which he refines your heart by the working of his Holy Spirit. Do what you know to be right, and that integrity will direct your paths all the day of your life. Now, that phrase, direct your path, probably reminds some of us of Proverbs chapter 3. You know the verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will direct your paths. Now, that's easy to do. It's easy to trust the Lord when everything is humming along. It's when push comes to shove, and we're faced with potential difficulties, that leaning not on our own understanding that that begins to become more of a challenge. And so it's those circumstances where you are saying to yourself, Lord, if I tell the truth here, I may get fired for this. Lord, if I take a stand here, I will certainly be socially ostracized for this. 
Lord, if I step out in obedience here and my integrity, dot, 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 it goes on from there. That's when it becomes hard to not lean on your own understanding. I told you the example. I got pulled over by a police officer when I was like 17 years old for making an illegal U-turn. And as soon as the cop came up to the window, the lies began to just come out as to how it was all a big mistake, officer, let me go, you know, it was innocent and all that kind of stuff. When the reality was it was a willful breaking of the law. I knew that I shouldn't turn there, but I did anyway when the cop pulled me over. And so it's when the push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road or whatever the phrases are that are there, that's when we have to decide, will I walk in my integrity now when there's the possibility of pain as a result from doing so? And I'm reminded as I think about this of the Old Testament character Joseph. Joseph there in the book of Genesis, found in the last 10 or 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, Joseph was a man who lived his life according to the uprightness of his heart. That means he lived his life with integrity before God and others. And you might recall that account there in Genesis 39 where Joseph's boss's wife makes a pass at him and she seeks to entice him. And she, I, I'm sure she reminded him, look, no one will ever know. Everybody is out in the field. You're the only slave that is here in the house, overseeing the house. My husband is not here. No one will ever know. And Joseph's response speaks to what I'm talking about. He says this, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. Because I have lived my life with integrity to this point, he trusts me. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife, he reminds this woman. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin? Now you would expect it to say, against my master. But notice it says against God. And see, what he does is he equates that our integrity is not only toward those that we're interacting with here on the earth, but in our personal integrity toward others, we're demonstrating our integrity in our relationship with the Father as well. Joseph was determined that he would maintain integrity with his relationship, in his relationship with God and with others, in this case, the master. And he was going to allow that integrity to guide his decision despite the great temptation that was no doubt before him there. And you think of all the temptations, certainly the sexual temptation as this woman is throwing herself at him. But even just this temptation, you know what? My life has been miserable. Every step of the way, my life has been miserable. I'm sold off into slavery. First, I'm beat by my brothers, thrown down in the pit. They're going to kill me, but they decide not to kill me because they can make some money off of me. So they keep me alive. They sell me off into slavery. I end up in this particular place. And then his life will go on from there. When in this situation here with the woman, he doesn't give in to this relationship. She then turned, says that he tried to rape her. So then he's thrown in prison. Then he does what he's supposed to do there in prison. And that doesn't go as ideal as it should go. And he languishes there even longer and longer. Step after step in this guy's life was not ideal. And yet he continues to maintain his integrity. He could have easily said, you know what, I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to do what I want to do and give in to my own impulses. And who cares? Everybody else seems to. And yet he doesn't do that. And he, from history, from that point on, he is a hero and a model of the faith to you and I. There's a story, maybe you've seen the movie Courageous, remember that movie a little while back? About the police officers and, and all this sort of stuff. 
Well, in there, if you haven't seen the movie, go get it. Um, you've had plenty of time. I'm not going to ruin the, the story for you. Uh, but there's this fellow Javier, funny character there in the movie. And Javier, you, you begin to realize, is struggling financially. They, the story plays out. He and his wife, they're talking about money. How are we going to afford this? How are we going to afford that? Where are we going to get work? And he's just trying to get these side jobs and things like that, just to earn a little bit of money to kind of provide for food for the day or for the week. And and he's kind of going through that. Then an opportunity arises at this particular factory. He can get a job at this factory. It's going to be a good job. He's going to have a steady income. And he gets the job. And he works hard. And people begin to notice him there. Then while he's there, just for a short while, the bosses come in and they say, hey, we'd like you to interview for the manager position of this factory, foreman of some sorts, whatever the job might be. We'd like you to come in and interview for it. And he goes in and he interviews there. And during that meeting, he's meeting with the owner of the business or whatever. And they say to him, look, Javier, we're going to need you from time to time to do these things. They're not ethical, but it's the only way we can get by as a business. Are you okay with that? Well, he's a believer. He needs the money. He needs this particular job. But no, I'm not okay with stealing and lying and robbing and, and all this other kind of stuff, fudging the numbers, these things that I've been talking about. And they're like, Javier, it looks like you need some time to think about this. Why don't you go home and think about it? He goes home, he thinks about it, he prays about it all night. His wife's all excited about the job. They're trying to figure out, is it okay? Because the owner said to do it, and so maybe it's okay. And they're convinced it's not okay. I know a lot of you probably seen the movie. You're like, yeah, we've already seen it. And so he comes back the next day and he says, look, I, I so very much appreciate the job opportunity. And it would be great for me and for my family, and I think I would do a good job with it. But I'm a follower of Christ, and I can't do it. I can't lie, I can't fudge the numbers. And the men sort of look at him. And they're like, yeah, that's what we were hoping to hear. We, we're looking for a person with integrity. And if you continue to watch the movie, they had offered the job to six other people. And all of them said, yeah, sure, whatever you want me to do. Don't be lying, no problem. But they were looking for a man with integrity. Now, I don't want to give the impression that your integrity is always going to work out like Javier's. All right, remember, it didn't work out for Joseph. And so because of Joseph's integrity not to lie with his boss's wife, Joseph ends up being thrown in jail. Sometimes the world system is going to rebel against your integrity. What God from this verse cries out to us is, will you continue to trust me even with that possibility? And what this Proverbs exhorts us is to keep trusting the Lord and to continue to walk in integrity. Now the unrighteous may not, and it may seem that they're getting ahead for not doing so in the short term. What this verse makes clear is this, that their crookedness and their treachery is going to ultimately bring about their downfall. And you see here in Proverbs 11, it says, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them, often in this world and most certainly in the next. And so this verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart, be a man, be a woman that walks in integrity and the uprightness of your heart, and the Lord will see that, and the Lord will honor that. Amen? Verse 4, a couple more verses. It says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Riches are commented on a number of times in Proverbs. Nothing necessarily wrong with possessing riches, as we've said, as long as your riches don't possess you. But as far as being man's chief goal, riches should not be 
our chief goal. And the reason is, is because riches cannot deliver a man in the day of death. The only thing that can deliver a man in the day of death is righteousness. Skip a few verses down. Look at verse 7. It says, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth will perish too. It's been said, a fool is a man, all of whose plans end at the grave. And so if all of your plans come to a crashing halt upon your death, then you did not plan very well. Those plans, I'm, my plan is I'm going to be a multimillionaire. Those plans may help you in the here and now, but what about in the then and there? And so your chief goal in life should not be, as it is for so many people, the acquisition of wealth. Because there is something that will live on beyond what your wealth can buy. Solomon says again, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The Bible's clear, as you know. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. On that day, when each of us comes to be judged for our life here on the earth, the only thing that will bring deliverance is righteousness. Now, of course, I I would be remiss if I didn't remind you, and from time to time I've been doing this in our study, when we speak of a person's righteousness, when the book of Proverbs speaks of the righteous, we're not speaking of a righteousness that is our own. Please be reminded of that, because I would hate for someone to just sort of pop in and think, you know, all right, I think the message was I should be a good person, because that's not the message of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs makes it very clear, or it doesn't make it very clear, I'm making it very clear, it assumes that the person has the righteousness of Christ. So we're not speaking of a righteousness of our own. Rather, we're speaking of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed unto the one that believes. It's counted as righteousness for the one that believes, even though it's not our righteousness at all. Speaking of our own righteousness, the prophet Isaiah, he says this, we are all as an unclean thing and our righteousness is as filthy rags. Your very best efforts as a sinful man or woman, to please a holy God, fall woefully short, the Bible makes clear. And Isaiah compares it to filthy rags, which, to be graphic, is is simply used menstrual cloths. That's the term that he uses there to describe it. Not disposable, but used ones that have been soiled. And he says, that's what you're offering. When you say to God, God, I'm a good person. God, accept me into your kingdom. He says, that's as if you brought that gift, and laid it there before God. This should be able to get me in, shouldn't it? Where, what would you do with that? When you see that, you would back away from it. Get that out of here, you would say. Imagine presenting such a gift to a dignitary, or a king, or a queen. And yet that's exactly what we do when we come to God in our own righteousness and expect him to accept us. The Bible makes it clear, you know, all sin, our sin separates us from a holy God. 59.2 of Isaiah says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. And the Bible makes clear that each one of us have sinned and fall short of God's holy standard. And so then to think that we can simply say, well, God, you know what? Ignore all that past stuff and accept this little gift that I've put together. That's the height of arrogance and it's the height of foolishness. The testimony of God's word is that the wages of our sin is death. Your sin, my sin, it must be judged. The penalty has to be paid in one way or another. And if it were not paid for, not expected that it had to be, required that it had to be, then God would not be just and righteous. And people will object and they'll say, well, I thought God was a God of love. 
He is a God of love. But he's also a God of holiness and righteousness and justice. And God cannot abandon one character trait to accommodate another. That's what makes the cross so beautiful and so wonderful. I'm excited the night before Thanksgiving we're going to you know, have our Thanksgiving service, but we'll be celebrating communion again that evening. And we'll have an extended time to consider the beauty and the wonder of the cross that God, in Christ, reconciled the world to himself through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. That on the cross God would count our trespasses and our sins against his son and not you and I. It's remarkable the way that the Lord did it. And so that verse I only partially quoted before, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so throughout the book of Proverbs, as we're studying it, when it speaks of a person being righteous or it references the righteous one, the presumption there is that the person is already in right relationship with God the Father. They've already dealt with their sin problem. And then we're moving on through there. So they dealt with their sin problem through faith. Believing with all their heart to quote what Paul said. One more verse here. Paul says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that a remarkable verse? We forget that, I think, as we're in the Lord for a little bit of time. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So again, whenever it speaks of righteousness, it's assuming you're already in right relationship with God through his son. So back in Proverbs, it says in verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The one sure thing for all of humanity, past, present, and future, the one sure thing is that every one of us will come to the end of our days. That's the certain thing. No matter where you live in the world, And what sort of system and what sort of economics and and all of that, the one sure thing is that every one of us will come to the end of our days. And it'll either be through our death or it will be through the return of Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, then comes the judgment. So we're all going to die or come to the end of our days when he returns. Then comes the judgment. So riches may deliver a man here on the earth from any consequences for their actions. And we've seen so many examples of that where a person has money and they can get off for the crimes that they've done or the things that they've done and riches may deliver a man here on the earth but as Solomon makes very clear they will never deliver a man in the day of God's wrath the only thing that can is the righteousness of God in Christ and so what should then all of humanity's chief aim be big bank accounts high paying jobs all those sorts of things No, if you want to pursue those, fine. Secondary, tertiary, all that. Primary has to be a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, because it's the only thing that will last and only thing that will matter when all of us come before a holy God. Amen? Two more verses. Verse five, the righteous of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Now we read here of the blameless man, at least in my version. You may then be tempted to think that we're speaking of a person that has never done anything wrong, thus making them without blame. That's not the idea of the word. The word here, it's meant to communicate a clear conscience. It's meant to communicate without hypocrisy. 
So again, we return back to the idea of personal integrity in the New Testament where Paul gives the qualifications of an elder. He instructs Titus there that an elder must be blameless, he says. I'll read it to you. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, etc. So blamelessness is a requirement of an elder in that situation, that circumstance. And you say, well, that rules out me. It rules out most, all of us in this room. We're not blameless. It doesn't actually rule anyone necessarily out in this rule because when Paul is talking about being blameless, he's not talking about having never sinned, but rather, as the ESV it renders it this way, being above reproach. That's very different from never having done anything wrong, being above reproach. A blameless man or woman is one whose words and deeds match up. Now, of course, if they stumble... They repent, and they begin to walk anew. But the normal course of things for a person that is above reproach is to act the same way whether the whole world is watching or they are alone in the secret place where, to quote Potiphar's wife, no one will ever know, as I assume she said. No matter where they are and what they're doing, the one that is above reproach seeks to walk with consistency. And so whether they're with their church friends or with the guys from work, there's no change in the way that person walks. Whether they're fellowshipping with the ladies at women's Bible study, or they're out to lunch with a group of friends, there's a consistency of character that travels with her. Whether he or she is gathered with their friends at youth group on Friday night, or they're sort of walking the halls on Monday. They're the same person in both of those places. The same rules apply that the righteousness of the blameless will keep their way. And so there's no need for the blameless man or woman, as we've been referencing, to weigh out the variables to decide what to do in a given circumstance because the one that is above reproach knows what decision they're going to make, the morally correct one. And so they'll never ask themselves, should I violate my conscience here? Is it advantageous at this time for me to do this instead? Should I engage in this practice with these people that I would never engage in with those people over there. They're not going to ask those questions because they're walking with integrity and the righteous, that righteousness guards their way and keeps it straight, as the verse says. And notice in verse 5, and it keeps them from falling. He says, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. He continues the same idea, verse 6. He says, the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. So righteousness not only guides the blameless, but righteousness delivers the blameless as well from the difficulties that their treachery, their sin would bring. Despite the fact that the world and even our flesh seeks to convince us that there is freedom in sin. You ever heard that? Freedom in sin, rules and morality, all of that stuff. It just binds us up. True freedom, some will say, is doing whatever you want whenever you want to do it. So many kids can't wait to get out of their house because then I'll be free. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and nobody can tell me anything and think that is true freedom. Notice what Solomon reminds us is this, that such a license to sin, notice what he says, it actually ensnares a man or a woman. He says it actually invites captivity, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. Freedom is not doing whatever you want whenever you want to. True freedom is not having to do what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. Ask a person in the grip of an addiction if they're truly free. 
Sin binds us. As Solomon says, it takes us captive. And the Lord would seek to save us from that. These plans here that the Lord has put in place are for our good. He desires good for us and wants good for us. And he seeks to save us from such captivity that such sin would bring in our lives. And so he is instructing us in the way that he should go. That's the way of wisdom. And today, among other things, we've learned the importance of walking in integrity and in righteousness, blamelessness, above reproach, and walking with humility. That's your three things to bring before the Lord and work on this particular week. Walking with personal integrity, in righteousness, and with humility. And I believe as each of us do that this week, we will sense the Lord's presence in a greater way and will sense his honoring those decisions in a greater way than we did perhaps last week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for some of the repetition today as you kind of nailed home these ideas of walking with personal integrity. And Lord, I pray that you would really just open our eyes this week in a way that maybe we didn't really take notice of before. We just sort of went about and did things. But this week, I pray you would shine a light on every decision that we're making and how, is this really honoring the Lord? Am I really operating here with a personal integrity? Am I walking without hypocrisy? Lord, am I lifted up in my own pride and you need to bring me down lower? Lord, use this, uh, this study to really impact the lives we live this week. And Lord, we know that we will be uh, blessed for your doing that. And so thank you for the truth of your word that we can sit in and settle under. Lord, use it to wash over each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.